you. So, let me adjust this awkwardly. How are we doing? Oh, gosh. I was kind of hoping for just a two on the applause meter. I mean, that was all I was hoping for, you know? And we almost made it. <laughs> all right. So, I mean, maybe you guys were just afraid I'd make you repeat that. So, that would be worse than death. Okay, so... For those of you who know me, as I'm still trying to get everything situated, my name is Sid Drew, and I'm the campus minister for RUF, and I'm going to pass this around. If you've signed up already and you're getting emails, please don't sign this. If you don't feel comfortable signing up, please don't sign this. Um, it's just kind of a way to keep track of what we're doing. Like, the details for the Friday night dinner, for instance, will be emailed over. And so, and we also have a Facebook group, RUF Davidson, I think it is, or Davidson RUF. You can... I'm sure there's only one of them. And then um, we also have a website if you want to look at that too. So anyway, um, REF is a, let me tell you a little bit about REF. REF is a Christian campus ministry uh, that exists for the convinced and the unconvinced, for the believer and the unbeliever, for the so tired you're sleeping with your eyes open right now, and for those of you who are wide awake and fully caffeinated on life. So... Both of you are welcome here. RF exists for the student who collects extracurricular clubs like baseball cards. And for the student who uh, here today who every club officer thinks is abroad because they never respond to emails. So, and really RUF exists for those who think Christianity is into reality denial and for those who think Christianity is the only way we can really get real about the life, about the deep waters of life. So in other words, wherever you are, whoever you are, thanks for coming. We're glad you're here. We hope that you uh, feel welcomed here. Um, We hope you get to know RUF and that RUF gets to know you. And that's part of why we do student leadership a lot. RUF is not just me. Um, It's a bunch of students more, and I'm here at the invitation of those students. So I appreciate them, I guess. And I also would say that please get to know some of the people who are doing announcements or leading worship. And I'm really going to bite it on this, so I'm going to move it. Okay, like I'm going to turn an ankle, and then there's, it's going to be bad. Okay, so anyway, um, so I just wanted to kind of reintroduce the book of Hebrews again. This is our second week. We're going to be studying the letter of the Hebrews in sequence. Um, Here's a little spoiler alert. As you just noticed, if you were here last week, there was about a chapter of information between where we were last week and this week. We're trying to get Hebrews done in 13 weeks, more like 12, maybe even 11, actually, with all the breaks that we have. So we're not going to be able to march through systematically. My encouragement is for, if you're interested, is to read around the passages that we do. So if you're like, Sid, what's the deal? Where's my Hebrews 1 verses 7 through 2 verses... Seven, right, or whatever, or eight. You know, that's that's where you can read on your own and see the argument between. Okay, um, let me tell you a little bit about Hebrews, the book. It's called the Letter to the Hebrews. It's an unknown author and it's an unknown audience, which is kind of interesting, right? It's in the second half of the Bible, more like the last third, which is called the New Testament. And I know I, I was talking to someone about this this past week. We can narrow down the author. Okay, we know that this author was or knew Paul. Okay, there's a reference to Timothy in chapter 13. Um, so we know that he has something to do with the church planting mission. But you know, there's this hot, heated, scholarly debate going on 
that makes pages and pages of commentaries about whether it's Silas or Barnabas or Paul or Apollos, and we really don't know. I don't think there's a good answer. There's no leading candidate. There's no horse I would bet on. Okay? And then also, we don't really know the audience, but we can narrow down as well. Based on the title, Letter to the Hebrews, the audience is, well, Hebrews, right? That is that they're Jewish in costume, they're Jewish in culture, they're Jewish in religion. And we can even go further and say that we actually probably, these people were either in Rome, which was the center of Roman, of Roman Empire persecution, or they were in Jerusalem, which was the center of the temple cult of Judaism, which was awfully attractive to these people because we're going to talk a lot about it um, in this letter. So, but we still have no idea which is right. And I really wouldn't feel comfortable putting money on either of those either of those cities. Although I don't think betting on biblical audience cities is really <laughs> much of Las Vegas' hobby or mine. But anyway, okay. So although we don't know the location of the author, or the location or the author, we do know what this book is about. The point of Hebrews is extremely clear. It's precision like a laser. It's answering a question that we all have, whether that's 2,000 years ago or in the present. And the question is, why is life, why is the Christian life in particular, so hard? Why is life, why is the Christian life in particular so very hard? If God loves us so much, why does this world that we live in seethe with suffering? And why does knowing Jesus sometimes make life harder and not easier? If we're honest, this is the truth for us. And so the title and the theme of our study of Hebrews is struggling to believe. Because again, if we're honest, we're all struggling to believe. You see, even on the days when life feels like it's filled to the brim and overflowing with loyal friends and all-you-can-eat good food, or maybe even a definite career path, like you know what you're supposed to do, what you're put on the planet to do, even on those days, there's a part of us with just a shift of circumstances that gets lonely, that gets fearful, and gets frustrated. And I love this about the letter of the Hebrews. I don't love that life's like this, okay? But I do love that the letter of the Hebrews doesn't frost over our problems with a saccharine sweet layer of icing. Okay, like everything's going to be fine. Sid and Hebrews, okay? There's no automatic, easy, instant answers going on in the book of Hebrews. Instead, passages like tonight's are wrestling with our inner doubts and our inner fears, and they offer us the double cure. Jesus. And so we're going to look at that cure more up close and personal. That's awesome. Um, That's out of order. Let's see. So let's pray and begin. Father, uh, I just pray that you would be with our hearts. Um, There's a lot of stuff that's unsettling that's happened, and I pray that you would give us calmness and peace, that you would make this a time of rest, a time where weary souls can gather um, and eat the bread of life. I pray that you, Jesus, will be comforting to us wherever we are, that you'd celebrate a good day with us, or you'd step alongside us and mourn a while for a day that just didn't go the way we wanted it from the time we woke up till now. And I pray, Father, that um, in your Son, Jesus, we would see you high and lifted up, and we would see the cure, we'd see the antidote to many of our problems, bit by bit, certainly not all at once, but... Lord willing, that we would see um, 
truth, that we would see goodness, that we would see beauty, and that we would see, most of all, you, Jesus. In these words, we pray to you. Amen. Can I start with a confession? Can I do that? Am I allowed to do that? Okay. This, this week, this passage, I have a lot of misgivings about it. Look, it's the second week of the fall semester, and I get to preach about death and the devil. I mean, have you thought about this? Like, think about, those are two topics that are like freeze tag to any pleasant conversation. Just imagine you're at Commons, you're at a study break, maybe you're down the hill, okay, and you say, hey, so Susie, Billy, what do you think about your own mortality? (laughs) Nothing, huh? Well, what about the devil? (laughs) Oh, I didn't know you had a class that you were already late for at 7 (laughs) p.m. But look, as I studied this passage more, and I peeked under the layers of my heart and under my life, and all those sort of kind of had a lot of self-examination, and I think that God really does do that to me when I look at Scripture, and I think he does that to you as well. I realize that um, these conversation stoppers are really have to do a lot with what, where we're at. What it feels like to be at Davidson, what it feels like to be you, what it feels like to be me. And I'm going to try to get at that truth indirectly with a story about me. Okay. So we're going to go way back in time, get the time machine with me, when I was a freshman in college. Okay, Whew. okay, ancient. So look, my freshman year is the spring semester, and um, it was late in the afternoon, and I was late to soccer practice. Okay, and I was coming from this class that went long, and I could feel the guilt and the fear starting to churn inside of me. I mentally started scurrying like the white rabbit from Alice in Wonderland. I started like looking at my watch and like going mentally like, I'm late, I'm late. I'm late for an important date. I'm late, late, late. Okay, and I knew this was probably a poor overreaction. You know, I had this moment where I talked to myself about it, but it was automatic, it was habitual, and it felt, frankly, biochemical. Okay, I felt like I was out of my control. And I really, I guess I just really didn't want to disappoint anybody. I didn't want to disappoint my coach. I didn't want to disappoint my team. I didn't want to disappoint myself. And so I started to increase my walking speed to that classic Davidson half run. You know what that is? Where it's like you're kind of angled forward and you're moving. <laughs> it's like, is that a robot? I, I don't know. Action figure. Okay, so anyway, I remember thinking about this. as I was thinking about practice. I was like, okay, they're probably through the stretches already. They're probably in 4v2. Um, and then, you know, maybe they're about to scrimmage. And I thought, great, I'm going to be stiff. I'm going to have no touch on the ball. I'm going to come there, and then I'm going to play poorly yet again in practice. I'll never get off the bench. But it was that moment, that exact moment, when my usual guilt and my usual people-pleasing, which still exists, was in full force, okay? I had this life-altering realization. It wasn't really a voice. It wasn't audible, okay? But the thought went like this. Sid, you know you don't have to. You don't have to live this way. It doesn't have to be like this for you. And I responded under my breath, half running. I know, I know, I know, I get it. And it was like this stop, this this thought stopped me short. And it was, I can remember where it was. It was right behind Little Library and right in front of Richardson Stadium. Because we had the locker rooms in Richardson Stadium. And I was about to do the punch code or whatever, okay? And I remember that that thought stopped me short and it said, No, 
Actually, you really don't know. If you did, then you wouldn't be running to practice that you have permission already to be late to. You've been driven like this for a really long time, since you were probably in about 8th grade. When is it going to stop? When are you going to stop being driven like this? When, didn't you tell yourself in high school that when you got into a good college, you'd stop being like this? But it's all the same. Now it's you worrying about the opportunities that lie behind good grades. It's about you worrying about the status that lies behind varsity playing varsity soccer. It's you worrying about the acceptance that lies behind having a social, more likable, but fake self. And can I just say that that moment, not surprisingly, felt like a punch in the face? I mean, can you imagine that? Your own thought life arguing with you like that. Okay, your brain, your brain betraying you in such a beautiful way. You know, and it hurt and it embarrassed me. Something awful. So much so that I had to actually even closed my eyes. I winced. But after the shock and the blackness, it was like someone tapped the brightness and volume key simultaneously of reality. You know what I mean on the MacBook? Okay. And all of a sudden, it was like the trees and the sun and the bricks all of a sudden shimmered with a beauty I had never really even seen. And that one spot, that's kind of like tree lane, and you know what I'm talking about behind Little in front of Richardson? I just noticed it for the first time. The birds and the wind became like unmuted all of a sudden. And I could hear, like, and I felt like I was in the midst of a gale force song and wind. It all really actually felt like a kind of freedom. And for the first time in a long time, I soaked in the present moment. The fears of my future fell away. The guilt over my past, it gave up. It felt like it gave up. Can you relate to that story in some way, maybe? And let me ask you in a couple different ways, maybe. Maybe you feel right now like I did then. You're tired, but you're in a hurry. You're here because you have to be. Maybe that's where you are. You're trying to push all the right Davidson buttons in the right order so that you can be the Davidson... What is it? What's the, what's the term that they have in the alumni magazine? Um, was it definitely Davidson or something like that? Or something kind of like nice double D? Okay, so distinctively Davidson is what it's called. Okay. Or maybe you're here because you're chasing that feeling of freedom that you once had and you felt you felt let you want to be feel laid by you want to feel led by desire instead of pushed along behind by obligation. Maybe that's where you are. To finish my story, of course, I went to practice, and the feeling faded into drills, and then into commons, and then into the library. I was in the basement. I know. I'm sorry. It only lasted a year. But look, looking backwards on my life, that feeling, that idea, that, high, that, that, that impulse, you just don't have to. It's okay, not to be, it's okay not to be okay. I just can't get over it. I couldn't get over it at the time, and I can't get over it now. In fact, I would actually argue, looking back at my life, that that feeling led to my eventual conversion to Christianity. I started out at Davidson not a Christian, and I think from that moment, the next fall, I became a Christian. I went from a firm agnostic to a Christian, and I think I was chasing that desire. I was chasing not just that moment, but the feeling behind that moment. 
the, not just the feeling, but the, the sense of living in the present and not being driven by fear or guilt. And I think I chase that all the way to Jesus, and I chase that to what this passage is talking about tonight. You see, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9 summarizes the passage nicely. Jesus is crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. That is, Jesus endured the suffering that comes from death and the devil, the slavery of guilt and fear. Jesus died a slave to rescue us, to free us from that deep-seated fear and guilt forever, bit by bit, but forever. Let me put it even more simply. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 9 through 18 tell us this. Jesus was driven to the cross to cure us of our drivenness. Jesus was driven to the cross to cure us of our drivenness. Therefore, we get free the more we we trace the way that Jesus frees us. We get free the more often we trace the ways that Jesus frees us. And our passage tonight describes this journey, describes the way in which Jesus frees us from guilt, the ways that he frees us from fear, and three ancient metaphors that have incredible modern application for us, okay? First, verses 10 through 11, we see that Jesus is a captain who's fighting for us. This is on your handout. Second, In verses 11 through 13, Jesus is an older brother who rejoices over us. And third and finally, in verses 14 through 18, we see Jesus is a faithful and merciful high priest. So let's begin at the beginning of our passage, shocking, at verses 10 through 11, and how Jesus is a captain who is fighting at the front lines for us. In verse 10... The author of Hebrews calls Jesus an archegos in the original language of Greek. Archegos means founder. That's, what we, that's the translation that you get in the English Standard Version translation. Okay, And this would have actually pumped up his original audience so much. Those first century Hebrews, wherever they lived and whoever they were, would have been excited. Because this original Greek word had two distinct meanings that were exciting. Okay? The first meaning is Archegos was a military captain who leads his troops into battle. But, you know, Archegos is actually, that, that idea is more than a captain who's barking orders from the bunker behind the lines. There's actually a sense in which he's a military general who gets dirty, who charges with the infantry into the muck and the sweat and the tears of the front lines. And that is, he fights with us. Christ is fighting with us. A general fighting with his troops is not just a powerful idea. It's a powerful strategy. And this, my friends, is where my educational background just comes into play beautifully. Some of you are studying econ for finance. Great. Some of you are studying biology for pre-med. Fine. But did you, are you, did you study Greek and Roman warfare for classics? That's what I did. So we're going to talk about it for a second. Perhaps just to justify my existence and my, the incredible amounts of money I spent at Davidson. Okay. Almost every ancient military 
History scholar credits the, the incredible success of Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar to their willingness to fight with their troops. It's just across the board. That's the difference between them and other generals. In fact, there's even this adoring description of another general who became an emperor named Trajan. And the inscription goes something like this. The people called him not just a king who sent his troops out to fight, but a captain who led his troops to fight. And even a brother who tore up his royal robes to bind up the wounds of the soldiers. Without getting too far ahead of ourselves, can we see how this changes the way we view Jesus for a second? Okay? The king of kings, by whom and for, all, for whom all things exist. He's fighting with us. The captain became flesh and blood to lead us here on the ground. And he suffered alongside us like a brother, tearing up strips of his royal privilege to bind what's broken inside of us and outside of us. Even He's binding up even the ways that we swing away at him and hurt ourselves instead. There was and is something moving about a person of power and status. Very God himself getting ordinary, getting downright ordinary, and slogging it out in the dirt and the blood with us. We serve a God who has wounds. A God who has wounds. And is proud of them. But our chaos doesn't just mean that Jesus fights with us, alongside us in the muck and the suffering and the sunshine and the memories. Okay? Our chaos has a second meaning in the Greek. It means political representative. You're like, that's scintillating. Okay? But let me explain what that means. According to N.T. Wright, a commentator, our chaos is someone who is there on someone else's behalf carrying our hopes and fears, carrying our needs and aspirations in his or her own person. So when we combine this representation, this carrying of our desires with the military metaphor of a captain, we get this interesting and important biblical concept. Jesus is a champion. Like, not like, you know, world, world heavyweight champion, okay? Like a champion in the sort of ancient sense of that word. That is... He's someone who fights instead of us. He's someone who fights for us and not just with us. He's a substitute. He fights our troubles within and our struggles outside of us. And he fights them for us. That's huge. Let me explain why that's huge. Verse 11. There we see that the description of Jesus fighting for us and with us is called sanctifies. That's the word it uses. What does sanctifies mean? This means that salvation, Jesus' freeing rescue, notice the tense. It's not just a past thing, it's a present thing. Therefore, we can't just say, hey, I want to tell you a story. I was all bad, then I met Jesus, and now I'm all good. That's not true. That's treating Jesus like a one-night stand. You know, and the Bible clearly depicts Jesus as the marrying type. Okay? And in marriage, Jesus is constantly washing us with his words, with the water of his words. His reminder is that you're free, you're lovely, you're worth it. Do you see how beautiful that is? He gives us a steady stream of delight 
And it's making us. It's making you and it's making me holy. Without spot or wrinkle or blemish or any such thing. You see, if we believe in him, Jesus is even now rescuing us from shooting ourselves to death. Okay, do you should yourself to death? I bet you do. Okay? Almost everyone in this room is killing ourselves softly with people-pleasing performances. And that's why you're here. That's why I went here. That's why I'm back here. Okay? Back for more. <laughs> okay? We're filled to overflow with past guilt and future fear. But Jesus is right now booming from heaven, whispering within us. He's saying, you're mine. You're mine. And what I want is what you are. What I want is what you are. And it's amazing how well you play that part. Verse 10 of our passage also reminds us that Jesus is fighting for, he's gently bathing many brothers and sisters. Many. Billions and billions of people. Okay? And this encourages us not to sell Jesus' rescue short. Okay? Don't assume that Jesus is done with you. But also, don't assume he won't ever get to your friend or your family member. Those, or even to you, if you're here today wrestling with this. Those kind of assumptions are way above every one of us in this room's, all of our metaphysical pay grade. Okay? We, can't, we can't grasp that. We can't know that. Okay? And we've got to trust that many mean something. So if Jesus is a military captain and champion that pumped up the original audience, they were excited about that. Okay, Jesus as our older brother who rejoices over us probably tripped them up. Okay, And that's our second point if you're following the outline, verses 11 through 13. Verse 11 tells us the sanctifier Jesus and those being sanctified, those people who believe in Jesus, share something in common. They all have one source. Do you know what a better translation for that is? One family. They have one family. That is Jesus and Christians share God the Father. And so Jesus is every Christian's older brother. Okay? That would be shocking for the first century because family is a way bigger deal for them back then than it is for us. Okay, it was a way bigger deal for them. Your family, their family was more intimate and more important. Let me tell you why. It's both more intimate and more important. It's more intimate in the sense, think about the average size of a house and the lack of technology. Okay? You're living on top of each other. Multiple people, if the families were bigger, the spaces were smaller. Like many other places in the world, aside from America, there was little to no personal space, little to no privacy. They did everything together. There was no separate TVs. There was no separate iPhones. In fact, there were no iPhones or TVs. You know what their entertainment was? The other family member's business. And it could be a dramedy. It could be a rom-com. It could be a thriller. But that was what they were talking about after dinner. They were not plugging into something, okay? And so you've got to understand that that's the context of what a brother means. Someone who lives on top of you and knows your business. Also, your resume was not what you did. Your, mes- your resume was your genealogy. Okay, here's what I mean by that. Who your people were was more important than what you did, your accomplishments. 
Now, this offends us. I have to admit. Okay, you're like, no, everyone here is like, I didn't get into Davidson because I knew because I knew people. No way did my family have anything to do with that. Okay, I made it. I worked hard. Don't tell me what I did. Okay, and because we live in a deeds-based meritocracy. Okay, for better or for worse. But in the first century, you were praised or blamed based on your family ties. Who you came from mattered. And really, let's be honest, the biology and genetics, the more we study it, the more that matters too. But that's a side note. Okay. Look, this small bit of context helps us to understand what a big deal it is to say that God the Father is our daddy. And what a big deal it would have been to say that Jesus is our brother. Look, that's the resume stopper. The person looking at the resume in the ancient world, Jesus is your brother? Boom, you're hired. You get to the corridor of power. No matter where you are, you have instant access to true power. The power that sustains the universe. It's a hall pass to end all hall passes. But look, Jesus isn't just a name I drop in prayer. Okay? Jesus isn't just a name I put on my resume so that when I die, I go to the right place. Okay? Jesus is actually... This older brother is telling us something. And the Bible puts it this way. This passage puts it this way. He's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. He's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. I want you to listen to the way that a commentator, Douglas Wilson, puts it because it's beautiful. When Christ brings us to heaven, he doesn't bring us to heaven while holding his nose. In verses 12 and 13, we learn that Christ sings praises to God in the midst of the congregation. From within our midst... He, Jesus, sings praises of God. He is the soloist. We worship and serve a God who delights in saving his people. God is filled to overflowing with joy. He rejoices over his people with gladness. He looks at your church, your church with the loud mouth breathers, your church with the people who sit too close to you and talk too loud in your face, and you and me. And he breaks into song about it. God, through Christ, wanted to save us and rejoices in having done so. He is not at all sorry about it. Christ is not ashamed to be our brother. He is not ashamed to share completely in our humanity. Further than this, he was not ashamed to be identified with us in our sin and our folly. There is nothing, nothing that you've done that shames Christ. There's nothing, nothing that you have not done that shames Christ. There is not one thought that you hate to think. There is not one feeling that clouds your judgment that Christ is not proud of. That's the gospel. That's what this means. He is belting out how great thou art in our midst. Look, if you have an older sibling, you get this instantly, right? I have an older sister. Okay, when my older sister is proud of me, there's nothing better. There really isn't. I think I feel like parents kind of have to be, but siblings they don't. Okay, I remember when I played when I was my sophomore year and I had the game of my life in soccer. Okay, sorry for all the soccer stories. And my sister came up afterwards and she actually talked to me and she actually hugged me in front of all of her cool older friends. And I was like, if I could bottle that feeling up, I would have bottled it and drank it every day. Okay? 
But also, when my sister is ashamed of me, there's nothing worse in the world. I remember just a few years after that game, we bought tickets to sit side by side at a concert. And then I found out, not through her, that she'd bought another ticket to go sit with her friends. It was the loneliest night I can remember. Now imagine Jesus, who is celebrating over you and over me in heaven. He's hugging you. He wants to spend time with you in front of the angels, the cooler, older angels. Jesus knows us in close quarters. No bedroom or iPod can shut him out of our lives. The resume that crowns him with glory has your name on it in bold type. Jesus knows every weird and private thing about us. All our insecurities, all our pet peeves, all of our sore temptations. And he doesn't taunt us with them like every other older sibling would. Instead, he sympathizes with, with us. He loosens those pet peeves, those insecurities, grip over our lives by his death. And this leads us to a third and final point. Jesus is a faithful and merciful high priest. Look at me with verses 14 through 18 of our passage. And by the way, this is where most modern people get tripped up. But it should be what excites most modern people the most. We'll talk a lot about this more as we get farther in the letter, because he's going to come back to this. But a high priest in the Old Testament was the one man in all of Israel who was allowed to go into the innermost room of the, of the, of the temple of God. It's called the Holy of Holies. And he was only allowed to do it one time a year for one period of time. And that day was called Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, which is coming up in the Jewish calendar soon. And the person was selected from among the people. The criteria was that he had to share in their flesh and their blood, and he had to be like his brothers in every respect. Do you see what the Hebrews is trying to say here? Jesus qualifies as the high priest. And the high priest also had to sacrifice, give a sacrifice, a life to God in that room where God dwelt intimately so that the rest of his brothers and sisters could get propitiation. What in the world? Propitiation just means forgiveness. It just means family access to God the Father. Now, what our captain and our elder brother faithfully did on the cross 2,000 years ago was he offered a sacrifice, not of an animal, not of a human, but of a God-man himself. And it was a perfect sacrifice. His fully human life represented all of his brothers and sisters perfectly. And his fully divine life was that so that one life might be transferred to many. Do you get the logic there? That's perfect logic. That's what propitiation means. That's what being a high priest means. And like so some of you are like, well, what's the takeaway? Because of this ultimate faithfulness and this ultimate mercy of God, the God man Jesus, we get unlimited forgiveness. You can't outsin God. You just can't. I don't dare you to try it, but you can't. Okay? And not only that, you get full family-style access to God, the Father, the God of the universe, who sustains it by the very word of power. 
But what does that have to do with death, the devil, and our drivenness? And now we come full circle in our story, okay? Well, hopefully you've seen that Jesus is fighting for us and not just with us, and that makes a difference. You know what that lets us do? It lets us rest from perfecting ourselves to death. I also hope you've seen how big brother Jesus has pride in us. And that gives us acceptance. We're rejoiced over by the singing king of everything. But Jesus' death, his forgiving death, also breaks the bonds of drivenness directly. Because it gets down to the deepest level of our hearts. And this is what verses 14 and 15 are about. Simply, according to verse 14, Jesus' death breaks up and interrupts Satan's constant stream of accusation. Jesus interrupts that internal monologue inside of all of us that heaps it on. Heaps on about how things you do aren't good enough. How things we do aren't good enough. How we're not good enough. And that's why the things we do aren't good enough. And verse 15 adds that Jesus' death destroys the finality of death. Jesus heals that deeply. On an unconscious knowledge that we cannot do anything here on earth that our eventual death will not wipe away. That's a paraphrase of Tolstoy, Lucretius, and Gangs of New York. Okay. I mean, look, just think for a moment. What makes us rush? What makes us anxious? What is it inside of us that makes everything so freaking important? Am I allowed to say freaking? Okay. Why do, you, why do we care so much about doing something that will make a mark? Why do we have to be remembered? Why do we want to be permanent? Verse 14 tells us that the usual suspects the movie is right. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. In our disbelief, we get stuck trying to prove ourselves in the, to the world that we're okay. And in fact, we're better than okay. I mean, just look at what I'm producing, people. Every day, look at my color-coordinated calendar. Okay, but verse 15 tells us, as much as we want to culturally deny death through our age, defying makeup. I mean, oil of lay is basically an industry dealing with death denial, right? Plastic surgery, sexual encounters, 60 is the new 50. Where does it end? Is 20 the new 10? I'm sorry, <laughs> if that is the case. Our knowledge of our, our mortality makes us double down and redouble our efforts to get it right and to get it right finally and fully so what we do has unlimited, infinite consequences. That it makes a mark that lasts. So how does Jesus' death change all that? Right? How does something by someone 2,000 years ago take away all of our guilt and all of our fears bit by bit and give us freedom instead. I'm going to quote somebody. It's lengthy. I'm sorry. It's the end of. A, I'm taking a risk, but it's so good, so good. Francis Bufford describes Jesus' death and his own faith beautifully. Let me put it this way. It's his way. On this one Friday morning in Palestine, Jesus is turning his face toward the whole human crowd, past and present and to come, and he's accepting everything we have to throw at him. Everything we fear we deserve ourselves. The doors of his heart are wedged open wide. And in rushes the whole pestilential flood. The vile and roiling tide of cruelties and failure and secrets. Let me take that from you, he's saying. He's saying, give that to me instead. Let me carry that. Let me be to blame instead. 
I'm big enough. I'm wide enough. This love is going where we go. All of us when we end. He's gone to the place our sorrows lead at their worst. Guilt's dead end. Panic's no exit loop. Despair's junkyard where everything is busted. And Spufford continues, I'm a very this-worldly Christian. I'm averagely afraid of dying. I believe because I want a way of living which opens out more widely and more honestly and more lovingly than I can manage for myself, which widens rather than narrows with each destructive decision that I make. I want, I need the promise of mending. Mending. Mended is not the same as never been broken. It's amnesty that's being offered, not amnesia. It's hope, not pretense. He can only take from us, he can only take over for us the guilt and the fear so that we can start again free in hope. So that we are free, freed to try again and to fail again. Better. Better. He can only overwhelm the human propensity to F things up with grace. Grace is forgiveness we can't earn. Grace is what that wasteful death on Skull Hill, that is Golgotha, did. I know it's a lengthy quote. I get it. But do we get the connection here? Jesus' death freed us to fail. It just did. Jesus' death made it finally okay not to be okay. And that's the antidote. That's the cure we're all looking for on our half run to the next thing. Would you pray with me? Father, there's a lot going on in this passage. It's dense, it's thick, it's meaty. But let's not miss it. We need to hear it. And I just pray that it would change our lives. It would turn them upside down. Change my life. (laughs) There's just ways in which I preach this and don't understand it. Ways in which the confession that I said at the beginning could be the confession the whole way through. And I pray that you'd be with each and every one of these students. Affect their hearts with it. Need your gospel into the depths of their being, the unconscious levels of nightmares, of fantasies, of dreaming about who they are and what they want to be. I pray that you would move, that you'd give us the freedom to fail freedom to try again better. The freedom to not feel like we have to do everything perfectly. I pray, Father, that you would be there doing this for us, applying your death. We need it. We pray that we get more and more of it. In Jesus' name.